0: Let us pray. Father God, we come before your holy word this morning. Without the power of the spirit, we are not up to the task of understanding and being blessed by this word. And so please pour out your spirit this morning as we look to your word. It's in the son's precious name we pray. Amen. Our passage today begins on the verse we closed on last time we were looking at this text two weeks ago. With the final words of Jacob's benedictory prayer, he has just decided to send his favorite son, the son he most loved, the son he most treasured, down into Egypt, even though he believes it might mean death for him. And Jacob's prayer had cried out in faith to the sovereign God, do as whatever you will, Lord. The resistance that Jacob had put up for at this time, a little, probably over a year, the idea that of handing over this son to Egypt has finally melted away in the hunger and demise of the famine and the cost and the toll Upon the famine, upon the covenant family of God. And so Jacob, in his despair, as one who lives under the authority of God, entrusts the future to God and prays to God for his mercy. And then it happens. It happens right there in verse 15. We have been in these passages with Jacob's sons since March. So when winter was melting away and turning into spring, we now have spring melting away, turning into summer, and it finally has happened. And most people just kind of glance over it. They never see it. But Moses, who has up until this point, always referred to the brothers, the sons of Jacob, The brothers of Joseph finally calls them men. He calls them men. If we remember from the last passage, Judah speaks up on behalf of the brothers, and he says, basically, he submits to the patriarchal authority of the father, the father in whom these brothers have been shown to resist time and time again through sexual deviancy, through lies, through deception through wickedness, through great and gross evil, through denying the prophetic word of God, they finally said, entrusted themselves to Jacob and said, Our fate is sealed with you. We're not going to go kidnap Benjamin. We're not going to go take him in order to save ourselves, to save Simeon. We will go and we will be led by your authority, by your command. And this was the authority that God had established for them, for them. They finally were listening to the authority of the patriarchal father who was a type and shadow of the God in whom they were called to worship. And the application is clear for our present day. The world is in short supply of men and women who fall under the authority of God, the Father, in the fullness of his word. and So that means that the Christian church is filled up with a childish church. Just talking to Adam Diefenbach this I was telling him something I remembered from seminary. It's one of those things that haunts me in seminary. It was when a professor pointed out that when the unbelieving world looks at Christianity, they don't picture people like R.C. Sproul or any of these sorts of individuals. They picture people like Joel Hosting, the Pope, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons Show. And it terrifies me. It terrifies me that these are the most popular representations of the Christian faith, because of them truly falls under the authority of Scripture, the authority of God's word, they're children at best, children. We're called to be formen on faith. we're called to be men, we're called to be women in a society that digs me. Manhood is toxic and wants to blur the lines, even the distinctions between gender itself. Moses, though, he knows nothing of this contemporary modernity, this plague, this idea that the public square wants to esteem. And I couldn't help but think as I looked at that change that has finally occurred of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11 which of course states when I was a child I talked like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child but when I became a man I put the ways of childhood behind me. We have a lot of childishness in society. And some of these brothers of Joseph, they would have been nearing the social security age in a modern perspective, but God's word up until this point has still refused to call them men this point of transformation the biblical understanding of what manhood or womanhood is truly rooted in, is it found in a 16th birthday celebration or a 21st, or in getting your first job or having your first car or well, in homeownership it's not found in any of those things. The biblical understanding to real maturity is, do you submit to the will of the Father, the ultimate a- Father who has authority over you? Do you desire to live in accordance with his word through the power of the Spirit so that you might reflect the image of the Son? Jacob is a typology, a shadow of a greater submission that must be. we must find as children of God the Father. Christian, the difference between a childish Christian and a mature Christian in one sense is asking yourself, do you respect the authority of God and the Word that declares his authority? Is that respected in the patterns of life that you follow? How grounded is the authority of God over your life? When something even like the matters of this week unfolds, how do you desire to understand the world in it, in wisdom? Do you go to your favorite talking head on the TV? Do you go to your favorite politician, or is it by the authority of God's Word? There are ultimately only two kinds of people in the pews today: individuals who declare, "Oh yes, I'll acknowledge you as Lord on Sunday." Well, really until after the sermon, as uh, service ends, that that hour plus, because. Kevin, he's a long-winded guy. But then I'm, gonna, I'm not antiquated enough to go actually live it. I'm going to go live exactly how I want to live. Are you an individual who has embraced the sobering call of spiritual maturity to the degree in which you say, yes, God, I want to be a man after your own image. I want to reflect who you are in this world. I want to be guided by your word. Lord, I know I fail. I know I've, I succumb to acting like a child time and time again, but I desire to look more like you. I desire, like the Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of Romans, to have the old man of death removed from, me, from us. Who are you? Typical manhood and womanhood begins with taking God and respecting his rightful authority and placing it over you and upon you. And having it influence your actions and your what you do. And if you are not yet there in your Christian walk, then you need to get there quickly, Christian. You really need to get there quickly. At the rate of social decay in our society, you need to get there quickly because the world needs you to get there quickly. The world needs more biblical men and women and less childish Christians. So these men are now men. It doesn't mean they're perfect throughout the remaining narrative. They make great mistakes, but Moses is now calling them men. And they take this present and double the money. And Benjamin down in Egypt, even though they are going down at despair, they, went, they think it might be the end for them. They think they might be walking to their death, but they are walking as men. And they come upon Joseph, and Joseph sees the brothers with Benjamin from a distance, and echoes of the parable of the prodigal son who started merging from the text. The brothers, in being seen by Joseph, will be welcomed into his home at the heat of the day, at the noontime hour, to enjoy a banquet feast, which displays his overwhelming, un graciousness beyond comprehension of this day, his hospitality, And while the famine and suffering had brought them here to this place, they were still unprepared to receive a grace like this. Yet grace will still be shown to them. And yet they resist it. They keep fighting it within the narrative. Nothing about this felt normal to them. They were lonely shepherds. Foreign shepherds don't get invited into royal homes, especially Egyptian homes who despise such shepherds. Lord would welcome reviled shepherds to come see him. Yet Joseph is that kind of Lord. And the Lord God, Jesus, is that kind of Lord. More fully. But as verse 18 makes clear, the guilt of the brothers remains for the guilty, even the kindness of others in this moment. It sets them ill at ease. They aren't comfort because they haven't fully Repented of their sins. The underlying Hebrew suggests here that the brothers have decided. Joseph must be luring them into the house as a trap. And said essentially the Hebrew here is to overwhelm them with force. Which is just kind of humorous. Because Joseph didn't need to lure them into the house to overcome them with force. He is currently the lord of the harvest. He controls the world's only major food supply. I can promise you, he had the military at his disposal. All of Egypt's neighbors would have wanted to take that for themselves. He had the whole army of Egypt under his power. The brothers in coming to him and worried about his overwhelming power—just it's a little humorous. He only needed to say the word, and he could have crushed them. But this is a gracious Lord. This is a gracious brother. And so, but their guilt remains. And so before even they set foot in Joseph's home, they speak as if they are on trial. They fess up to the silver they found in their bags in the previous trip, even though they haven't been accused of a single thing. But they are still defending themselves as if before a judge to tell Joseph's most entrusted servant by basically declaring to them that it was not their fault. They did not steal these things. And it's clear that Joseph anticipated this response by the brothers. And, and so he had ordered his servant to basically calm the nerves of his brothers. Having the servant declare to them in the Hebrew, basically a benediction of sorts. Essentially stating, may the Shilion, may the peace of God that gives all its benefits be before you. Because the peace of God rests upon you. And then he says something incredible. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And it's interesting because the temptation for the casual reader of the Bible would be to suggest that the steward is lying to the brothers. Because we know from Genesis 24 verse 25 that it was actually Joseph who said to put the silver in the bags of the brother. But that's actually not a full reading of this story. Because later on in chapter 50, verse 19, Joseph will credit all his actions that he was led to take in this moment to ultimately be inspired by God. So in the fullness of how Moses will reveal this story, we will ultimately learn from Genesis not to look at these plans, not to look at the events as they begin to unfold, as ultimately Joseph's plans. But in an ultimate sense, God's plans prepared for Joseph so that in righteousness he might walk faithfully in them. So this steward is actually being honest. God gave them the silver. If it had been up to Joseph outside the great grace of God, the restraining hand of God, Joseph, like long ago, would have utilized those same soldiers to utterly punish and crush the brothers, slashing out at them. But this is a story all about God's grace prevailing in trying times, making men out of childish sons and making heroes out of outcasts. And when we have a God-centered perspective on the blessings that have so far unfolded, then the real question becomes, why would God pay the debt owed by worthless shepherds like these? Or if I'm being too unclear, let me be more direct. How can you not see the full anticipation of the gospel at this moment, at this point in time in the text? God gives a payment unmerited by the brothers' actions. God paid the grain debt, their money was no good to buy. And no longer are we really talking about grain and brought bags, but we're talking about sins and the deep reaches of the human soul. Christian, come to a place of biblical maturity and embrace the God who uncovers the cost for the sins in which you and I have no ability to pay in our own power. Come to the Lord of heaven's harvest and allow him to give you uh, heavenly peace and assurance beyond a human understanding. So the steward, in hearing these once sons, now men, trying to make a legal defense, basically responds to the fear with, don't worry. I have no legal grievance against you. Your debt has been paid. Take the excess for yourself. And then Simeon is restored to them. And after Simeon is restored to them in verse 24, the men come in to the Lord of Egypt's great, of uh, the great harvest, his home. After a long walk in the famished lands, having been beaten down by the new time day, they are given water, and their feet are washed, and their donkeys are fed, as they awaited to share both bread and wine with this great ha- Lord of the harvest of Egypt. And they prepared the gift that they had been prepared to offer him. And then it happens in verse 26. Then it happens. Joseph enters the room, and the prophetic word of God, the the first prophecy that so inflamed the anger of these brothers, it comes to a full fulfillment. All 11 brothers are now bowing down before Joseph And yet the brothers don't have eyes to yet see that the prophetic word of God has been fulfilled in their midst. Throughout this passage, the brothers are going to be blind to see the prophetic power of God. They will not be able to see yet the favorite son of the Lord's, the favorite son, this Lord of a unique identity. They don't realize the act that was so revolting. this act that was so revolting for them to consider just two decades ago that they would bow before this Lord. This brother is now what they are doing. And in that is actually an illustration a little bit about even saving faith, is it not? Isn't saving faith really not caring anything about God? Not desiring to bow before him as your authority, as your Lord, as the one in, which, in whom you live and move and have your being and others around you, even in the womb. And we don't want to bow to him. We hate that idea. It's vile to us at first in our old man in that sin struggle. We hate that idea. We don't want to surrender that to him. We love our autonomy. We love being our own little gods. And then, in a moment, through the plans of the Lord, it all changes. It all changes, and the one you once hated, you now love and adore. And you've, the scales have been removed from your eyes, and you see, clearly now, something that you never saw before. We need men and women who are unashamed of this reality in our world today, as the famine continues. And now you might begin to wonder, why doesn't Joseph now reveal who he is? Well, realize and appreciate this. In all the prophetic revelation God gave to Joseph, God had never told Joseph where the brothers' hearts would be at when they bowed down before him. They were still men who 20 years ago wanted to kill him over such an idea. So appreciate the fact that Joseph doesn't know what we learned back in verse 15, that these brothers have finally become men. He's ignorant of this fact. And so he will begin to orchestrate a test to uncover their hearts. And so Joseph begins asking about the welfare first of the brothers and then of their father. And this should have immediately raised huge questions for the brothers. A lawn bell should have been going off. Why does the Lord of Egypt's grain harvest care about me? Why does he remember the details of my life? Why are the details of my life important to him? And the answer is, that's just who the Lord, the ultimate Lord is. He's the God of all the universe, and yet he cares about the insignificant you and me. He cares about people like us. And in one sense, Joseph is an illustration of this greater foreshadowing and anticipation of the greater Lord to come. And then Joseph's attention turns to Benjamin, and he offers Benjamin a special word of blessing, and he begins to then become undone emotionally, and he has to leave the room to compose himself. The word in Hebrew translation for this moment is basically his compassion boils over. It boils over. It's only used one other time in Scripture, in the Old Testament. It's used when the king of Solomon, and trying to figure out which of these mothers was actually the mother of the child, says, cut the child in half. And the real mother's compassion for the child boiled over, and she said, no, no, child's not mine. No, give the child to her, and Solomon had the wisdom at that moment in seeing that boiling over of compassion to go, that's the true mother, and he gives the mother her baby back. But again, these brothers, while they're now men, they still don't have eyes to see that this boiling over compassion, that this prophecy being fulfilled in their midst, they still don't have eyes to see who this son is before them. Who is this Lord of the harvest whom is mindful of me, a lowly man? And after a time, Joseph regains his composure and washes his face. And then Joseph commands that food be served. And... This is an important historical point that as we especially continue on into Exodus, we need to be aware of in this moment. And then it has, I think, a, a broader application for our own day. The Egyptians will not eat with the Hebrews. And so that means Joseph can't eat with the Egyptians. But the brothers don't realize that Joseph's an Egyptian, not an Egyptian, he's a Hebrew. And so Joseph ends up eating alone. The Egyptians separate, and the brothers separate. Though ironically, if anything, Joseph is kind of eating from the, with the brothers because he keeps feeding them from his table. Trying to decide if I want the illustration to go before explaining what that means. Take the illustration first. There's been a lot of talk about a cultural shift going on in America. A lot of despair because of the fact that it is clear that Christianity is really not welcomed in the way it used to be in the public square at the table. I want you to hold on to that and let me start to unpack this passage. It is going to be a mercy that God sends the family of Israel, down into Egypt. We have seen already, for example, in the story of Judah and Tamar, that it seems like when the Israelites get close to the Canaanites, their culture is too close. They share too much in common. And basically, Israelis end up looking like Canaanites when they're in Canaan. Well, the Egyptians, and this is something that even the secular historians, the ancient secular historians like Herodotus and a few others, they all talk about. Egyptians were legendary. They only ate with their kind. They did not eat with others. That was vile. That was disgusting. We're Egyptians, after all. And actually, it is, a, in one sense, a blessing, even though Egypt will lead to great hardship and toil, being moved from Cana to Egypt, will lead to great hardship. It'll be a unique blessing of God because he has promised Abraham that he will from Abraham raise a great nation and then from that nation bless the nations, bless the multitude. And so the nation of Israel needed to be established. And the reason why God doesn't just have them established on the plains of Canaan is it would have been too great of a temptation. He puts them into a culture that is so radically different. And so it so does not desire to incorporate itself into Hebraic culture that it will shun itself from it and will allow Israel to remain Israel. And so I go back to the state of things in America. Are we maybe complaining about being moved from a land of Canaan to a land more like Egypt? Why? Why? Yeah, I lived in the 80s and 90s and such. There was this kind of like thin veneer of cultural Christianity. And it was shallow. And it didn't produce men. It produced children. And women. Maybe the best thing for us is to have society and culture basically say, we want nothing from you. We want to be set apart from you. Maybe that's actually the greatest blessing that God can give us in this present time and present moment as we see famine come upon the land. And maybe then, too, it's not that God would totally forsake Egypt. We'll see a great multitude from Egypt. They incorporate into the family of God. We've even seen it in Joseph's story. He's already had two sons. But still, it might be the best thing for us it might not be as bad as the news and the talk shows wants to believe it is. Maybe it is good for a little while to go down into the land of Egypt. And so the banquet feast begins. And as I said, they are separated. An alarm bell should have been going off. And then Joseph, in desiring to know the heart of his brothers to whether to know whether these brothers are still children or they are men, begins to start his test. First, he arranges them in order, from oldest to youngest. And then, to the least of the brothers, the last of the brothers, he gives a fivefold portion. To the least, he gives the greatest. Jealousy is a powerful sin. Even we see that in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. It was jealousy. Between brothers that created the first murder. Jealousy is a powerful sin. And yet these brothers in this moment, they prove themselves to be men. They prove themselves to be men. They do not look, even though they had previously looked at a previous child of Rachel, Joseph, and saw that he he got something they didn't. And they were jealous of him, jealous to the point of wanting to kill him. They do not do that with Joseph. Of Benjamin. And so they enjoy this festival gathering, this feast before the Lord of the harvest with great delight. And then, as our passage closes, he sends them off and he sets in motion the planting of a silver cup in Benjamin's grain. Think of it from there, his perspective as Joseph's. He is going to. First off, why didn't he use a gold cup? He's an Egyptian lord. He definitely has gold cup. Here we go for a third time. The brothers are going to be going back to Canaan with silver that is not theirs to have. He gives them this great silver cup. But this silver cup, to steal a silver cup of the Lord of the harvest would have been a death penalty. That's a death penalty. This least of all, this youngest brother will be found to have something that deserves in the brother's eyes the penalty of death. And it would have been in the eyes of Egypt. What will they do? Will the jealousy come back once again and they will cast off another brother to Egypt? That's for next week. But for us in this moment, we need to appreciate that God gives us moments of trials and testing. And so fellow brothers and sisters in Christ What is your silver cup, the thing by which your faith is tried and tested in this present season of life? Are you succumbing to it? Does it have ultimate power and authority over you? Or are you striving to live under the authority of God? For both you and me, our temptations to sin, our temptations to doubt the Lord's goodness and where he has placed us, Our temptations to live like a Canaanite rather than being separate and distinct from the world, our refusal to truly submit to the word of God, all these things and other pattern sins after them, we are actually always being tempted by an authority problem. And we need to fight that lack of desire to treat God as our authority. We really do. God gives his children moments of testing and trial so that we can move from being immature believers to deeply committed lovers of God. So where does your authority rest? Is it in politicians and the political rulings and ramblings? Is it in seeking pleasure and gain? Or is it in coming under the authority of God and saying, I once was a child, Lord. And far often I confess I'm still a child, but I have seen the sacrifice of your son. I have seen the Lord of heaven's harvest. And I desire to live for him and love him and embrace him in all goodness and wisdom. Wherever it takes me, wherever I must go, whether it takes me from living comfortably in Canaan down into Egypt, wherever, Lord, I just want your will to be done. It is in such moments we become prepared to be true men and women of the faith. And the world needs more of those today men and women firmly entrenched in the word of God, able to understand God, his word, his grace, his mercy, and who understand it in such a way that they beckon to others that to come in from the land of famine, that's famine that surrounds us all, so that they too may taste and see that the Lord and his harvest and his banquet is most certainly good indeed. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, who is a Lord like you, that you are mindful of us. You know the deep reaches of our hearts and souls, and you know the depths even of our ugliness and sin. And yet you still decide to extend a hand of gracious kindness and mercy and offer us terms of peace. Help us, Lord in the times of testing and trial, to stand firm, to trust and trust ourselves to you. Because we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.